Did you know this podcast is sponsored by Audible.com? Did you also know that means you can get a free audiobook? You want to train your cat to do hula hoops? You probably can't do that, but you do have more audiobooks than you could ever possibly listen to. If you go to audibletrial.com slash the laps, you can get a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial. And as a bonus, it helps keep this show running. Just go to audibletrial.com slash the laps before you forget. Help support the show. Get a free audiobook. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Lap Storytelling Podcast, where we tell true stories gussied up. I'm your host, Kyle Jest, and today we've got, quite frankly, a hell of a story. Gavin Kennedy and his buddy made it their mission to bike from Vancouver, Canada to Argentina. If you're geographically challenged, that is the top of North America to the bottom of South America. What could possibly go wrong? I'm calling this one Scenic Route. Here it comes. This is the Laps. Gavin sits on his bike. He takes another look at the map. Canada. Starting in Canada. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea. It was this huge bike, and it weighed 100 pounds. We're going to go through Mexico in this thing, and then we're going to have to bike through the Andes, and there's like days and days of climbing up mountains. I can't see myself riding this to Argentina. Like This is, this is the most ridiculous thing ever. But heck, that's only 11,357 kilometers. What's life without a little adventure? When we started out, we were doing about 50 to 60 kilometers a day. Joining Gavin is his best bud and Frenchman, Guillaume. There's two dudes, two bikes, and the Pan American Highway. We didn't know the bikes and, you know, we didn't know how to ride them properly because neither one of us had ridden together. But as you go along, like as you get months into the trip, your body starts to adapt and your legs are just like killing it. 110, 120, 130 clicks a day. In just two months, they've hit the Mexican border. Both Guillaume and I spoke decent Spanish because I lived in Spain and Guillaume has a lot of family living in Spain. While Spanish they may speak, Spanish, they don't look. The further south they get, the more they stick out. One town in particular. There was like 70 girls on the side of the road with Justin Bieber posters screaming and they saw us and we were like these not Mexican guys in, in very rural Mexico and they just started screaming at us. In Mexico, there's a certain recognition, not as Bieber necessarily, but a respect for the pilgrimage, the journey. Four months into that journey, Gavin loses Giel. I was a little worried about him. And I remember waiting for him on the side of the highway for like two hours. Splitting up wasn't unusual. They were used to that. But the drill is supposed to be the same. Know where they're sleeping before the sun goes down. Guillaume had the stove. I'd been riding for like 100 kilometers and I, I hadn't eaten and I was like, fuck, I just gotta like find a place to camp. It's not as simple as like, you know, going off the side of the road. You'd usually go into like a plantation or knock on someone's door. The more Gavin searches, the longer the road seems to stretch. Fence after fence after fence. With one exception. I saw this sign that said, Tortuga Refugio. Turtle Refuge, Gavin tries his luck. And I ended up running into this gate. A gate and a man, and combat fatigues, and also a rifle. It's a military base. Understandably, he's like, what are you doing here? I'm, uh, says Gavin, I'm here to see the turtles. You know, uh, La Tortugas? The soldier raises an eyebrow. The Tortugas? Why didn't you say so? Come, 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 my friend. 
And so I started kind of like pushing my bike down the beach on this base. And I went up to this guy and I, I thought he might be like a high ranking officer. Unlike the rest of the base, this guy is taking it easy, rocking gently in his camouflaged hammock. Beside him, a woman strokes his hair. <laughs> Excuse me, sir, says Gavin. You mind if I camp nearby? It'll only be a night. You know, he looked at me and he's like, I, I couldn't really give a shit, kid. Like, do what you gotta do. So, Gavin plunks himself down in an empty hut towards the obstacle course. But evidently, word of a guest hasn't quite made the rounds. And then this guy comes by. At this point, I sort of made this uh, appearance that I was like a turtle enthusiast. I mean, which was total bullshit. I just wanted a place to camp. But the soldier buys it. His eyes light up. He says, okay, okay, but... Right now, we can't see them, but I'm going to wake you up in the morning, and we're going to go to, like, the biology station, and we're going to, like, see the tortugas. The soldier, his name's Roberto, wishes Gavin goodnight. <laughs> the next morning at 5 a.m., sure enough, Roberto is knocking on my door. I dragged myself out of bed, and we went to this, uh, this big tented area. Roberto ushers Gavin on, urging him past several soldiers with machine guns. Camino, come, look. Gavin can hear them before he sees them. Dozens of endangered leatherback turtles, just babies. They're little squawks of protest. A biologist works hurriedly, separating the hatchlings into baskets. Gavin gets acquainted, and suddenly he too finds himself putting turtles into baskets. The biologist turns to him and says, hey, wanna help us release them? We had two escorted soldiers with us with like machine guns, and there was all these seagulls and like kind of like opportunist predators that were on like on the sidelines because they knew the score, they knew how this like happened. My friends, you ready? Let's go. The men flip open the baskets. Instantly, the seagulls close in. It was just really funny because the, like the waves were coming in and there was all these predators waiting for us to like make a mistake. But the men push back the predators, quick to form a perimeter. As the first wave laps the shore, the sea embraces the turtles. It was a really emotional moment because I was watching these turtles that were the size of my palm and I had one in my hand and I watched it float off into the ocean and I kind of thought about how extraordinary that is to be that small and vulnerable and live to be maybe 100 years old and, and grow to be a full-sized leatherback turtle. Guillaume and I met up the next day after the Turtle Refuge and turned out, you know, he was at this town 50 kilometers south of where I was at. It turned out there was this like massive drug bust in the in the town that he was at and the military was called in. And, Hold and on a this, second. This the adventure ain't over yet. Camping. We've still got 6,141 kilometers to go. Say with me. Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica. And by the time we got to Panama, we were both mentally and physically exhausted. You know, we were interacting with people on a very different level. There's a lot more poverty. And also the roads were not as well kept and they weren't as scenic. The local well-wishers become fewer and farther between. The duo's journey viewed as maybe less commendable than foolhardy. In fact, Guillaume's already been robbed once. Not violently, but they, you know, they just kind of held him down. And then Guillaume went to the police station and they went for a drive. They, they just randomly happened to cross into these guys who robbed him. I think it was very difficult in Guillaume because these kids who had families, I don't think they'd ever robbed anyone before. They weren't bad people. They just saw a relatively wealthy man, you know, with more wealth on his bicycle than they had in their entire lives. They took a chance and they got caught. 
Fortunately, Guillaume gets everything back, passport included. And as Panama comes to an end, so too does the Pan-American Highway. Symbolically, it's interesting because it's like you have this road which goes from Alaska all the way down to Argentina, and it ends in Panama. The road does continue in Colombia after a 160-kilometer swath of forest and swampland. Options for getting through typically come down to two, air or sea. They opt for sea with a 13-hour storm. When I was leaving on this trip, people would always talk about Colombia. It was kind of like this, like, here be dragons place. We've got 400 kilometers to cover before Medellin in central Colombia. But in this particular part of Colombia, traveling by bike, especially expensive bikes, would be like putting them on auction. It's not an easy decision, but it is a necessary one. They purchased a bus ticket. And that was a big deal for us because we never took buses. And, and it also like suggested we weren't purists anymore. We weren't just on a bike trip. The bikes are stored underneath the bus. But for safekeeping, Gavin tells Guillaume, you better keep your bag on board. The bus itself proved surprisingly well-equipped at least relative to the state of the roads. The roads were unpaved often and overgrown with landslides that had fallen over. Gavin tries to make himself comfortable. There's a Van Damme flick playing above his head. Most of the other passengers are asleep. But up ahead in the road, there's a light. Three lights, actually. And the bus came to a stop and I was reading my iPad. I had this book that I was trying to read and Guillaume was asleep beside me. Immediately, I knew what was happening. I knew we were gonna get robbed. These three gunmen came on the bus. And so we didn't really know what it, you know, what it meant to get robbed in Columbia. You know, like people get abducted. The bus keeps to a hush. They know the drill. The gunmen sweep the aisle, clearing what they can see and demanding what they can't. And as they're just about to leave. They saw Guillaume's like handlebar bag and they grabbed that and Guillaume, they, they didn't see it on the first go and, and I could just like feel Guillaume's heart sink when it happened. It was a really horrible experience because a lot of the people on the bus were like subsistence farmers and very poor people. And I tried to rationalize the whole experience about, you know, theft and poverty and inequality and like what this all meant. Guillaume, you know, just said very bluntly, like they weren't intentionally robbing us. We were the only foreigners on the bus. These guys are just bad men. Fortunately, stored under the bus, the duo still have their bikes. They ride the rest of the way to Medellin. With no cash and no place to stay, though, they're sleeping on benches tonight. Every time I fell asleep, a guard would come and wake me up and tell me I couldn't sleep there. And, you know, so I spent the entire night just sort of like reflecting about the trip. When we got to Ecuador, my parents kind of convinced me that we were going to send the bikes home. We boxed up the bikes, cleaned them up, and it was like everything just sort of ended. We identified so much with the bikes that when it happened, we were no longer like two dudes on bikes. We were just like two dudes with backpacks in, in Ecuador. Guillaume still wants to continue. But for Gavin, without the bikes, nothing makes sense. What they're doing, this goal to go from Canada to Argentina, what's the point? And I, I, I just got like extremely angry and upset and, uh, and kind of, I got on a bus and I left Guillaume and I don't believe in fate or anything, but I knew it was like, I, I wouldn't see Guillaume again for a very long time. I ended up in the south and there was this mountain I wanted to climb and it was about 6,000 meters and it was called Mount Cotopaxi. And 
I had this whole plan to go up Cotopaxi and it would be like the last thing I did in on this trip and I, I would just like I would just end it there because I, I didn't have it in me anymore to do it. Later that night I got extremely sick. They took me to the military hospital because it was the first hospital and it was close by. And it turned out that I, I had appendicitis and it was like it was about to burst. I went in for surgery that night and it was like both my parents and Guillaume, no one knew where I was. And so I was in this hospital, you know, just after surgery and I just, I didn't have my bike and I couldn't travel, can't bike after surgery anyways. My body was like physically telling me to go home. And so I boarded a plane to Montreal because that's where my girlfriend lived and uh, that was it for me. Probably the hardest part of the trip was, was coming home. Coming home and trying to reintegrate. It was like everyone else was living at like a different time and place and and nothing really matched up. Like the only person who really understood what it was to, to do this was like Guillaume. It never actually was about the bikes at all. Like it was about the communities along the way and the all the flyover country and the places in between that we would visit and, and these communities that we would interact with. And the bikes were just purely a really slow vehicle to take us from town to town. That story again was shared by Gavin Kennedy. Gavin is a documentary filmmaker and storyteller. You can actually read about his entire trip, and believe me, there's a lot here that we could not cover on twodudesonbikes.com. You can get a link to that at our homepage, thelaps.org. Thank you again to Jesse Brennan for this episode's transcription. If you like The Laps and you want to see it continue, please consider contributing to our show. There are some rewards in it for you if you do. Visit thelaps.org for details. My name is Kyle Jest, and this was The Laps. Thank you so much for listening.